Hey friends, it's Kara Kay, and this is the Asking for a Friend podcast, a show for the woman who has questions about herself, the church, and the world. We are all asking tough questions that affect us as women in the culture that surrounds us, and we are looking for a safe space to ask them. But don't worry, I know you're only asking for a friend. Hey, hey, friends, welcome to episode number 56 of Asking for a Friend. I am so thrilled you are here today. It is political season, isn't it? It's been a little crazy, but we are coming to a close here if we can make it through the next few days. Today, I invited Caitlin Scheiss to join me. She is the author of the book, The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Now, I picked this book up because the title jumped out to me, and and then I just flew through it and read this book so quickly, I could not get enough. It is absolutely fabulous, so I really encourage you to grab this book if you have questions about what it looks like to engage with politics but still be a Christ follower and it feels really icky. She just does such a great job of walking us through that. And so today we are going to be talking through some of the misconceptions of politics and within our churches and how we as Christians should still be engaged and not avoid voting and not avoid politics because it really does matter. So let's get into this great conversation with Caitlin. How is it releasing a book about politics in the midst of this craziness? Yeah, you know, it's funny because everyone on one hand really wants to talk to you about it. (laughs) And on the other hand, um, they're kind of coming in usually a little hotter than they might under normal circumstances. Mm. And so... Um, Sometimes that means that part of the conversation has to be a little bit of of de-escalating, you know. Um, But some of the thing that's that's nice about it is um, because I wrote a book that's about politics, but also really is primarily about spiritual formation and the church. Sometimes that means I actually get people in a calmer, um, you know, guards down sort of way than maybe Mm -hmm. the average person that might write something about politics that's a little bit more right. That's true. So that can be really good and and can learn from other people too. I really enjoy when people are willing to say like, hey, I read this and, and this is how I you know, responded or this is how it works out in my context and, and I want to learn from that too. Well, I loved the idea when I saw the book, I was like, okay, um, liturgy and politics. Yep. I need to check this out <laughs> because I love the practice of you know spiritual formation and just God has been teaching me a lot about spiritual practices mm. in my life over the last couple of years. And so this just really stood out to me and I've also been really stepping into these spaces of seeing how my politics do affect people around me. And so I'll just say, I loved the book. I literally read it in like 48 hours. It was so great. So I just appreciate it. I appreciate the work that you put into it because I know it's no easy task to do. Let's dig into this. I want to focus for a bit on these four gospel ideas that you wrote about in the book and walk through those because I think this will help people have a good understanding of what you're talking about and some of the the pitfalls that we find with ourselves surrounding politics and the gospel and those things. So 
let's go through those. The first one is the prosperity gospel. Will you take us through that and what that means and what that looks like? Yeah. So I think a lot of people when they hear prosperity gospel will think, oh, I, I know what that is and that's not me. You know, that's right, a televangelist right. with a jet and really mm-hmm. nice clothes and, you know, send your seed money in so that you can, um, you know, be prosperous. And I think it's really important for us to think about Again, not just the things that we would write down if we were to write down a doctrinal statement, but some of the things that are sort of humming underneath the surface that come out when we're under stress or things are hard. And one of those things tends to be that whether it's God or the universe or the free market, we think that if we act responsibly, we should be rewarded with health and wealth and and with good lives. And so a lot of the churches that I grew up in were not stereotypical, you know, prosperity gospel churches. But there was this belief that that was pretty common that if you're being a responsible person, if you're, you know, saving money, if you're if you have a good job, if you work hard, then you will be rewarded with a prosperous life. Mm. And that's just not a story that can jive with the gospel very well, partially because there's no moral weight given to poverty um, in scripture. And in fact, there's often moral weight given to wealth that it it shows how it so often corrupts people and causes them to mistreat others. And so it's so strange that. A community that is intended to be built off of how scripture describes the world and us and our mission in it would turn around and have this very backwards way of thinking about wealth and prosperity, and especially the way that we interact politically. Um, Even if we might not say those things to people in our churches, we very often say those things about people, you know, that we've never met, but that we kind of have stereotypes about in the world that we say, oh, that poor community in my city or, you know, across the country that might become an issue, a talking point during election. Well, if they would just work Mm -hmm. harder, if they would be smarter, if they would be responsible, then they would be fine. And we can disagree about how, you know, what different policies could do for people in poverty. But what we can't disagree on with as Christians is that there is no moral deficit to someone because they are impoverished. And we should have every theological reason to know that sin uh, works in systems, it works in generations, and it causes injustice in the world. And that would be a better Mm -hmm. way of thinking about it. That's that's a great way of looking at it. I'm with you. I kind of had grown up in that idea of, well, God's going to bless you because of, you know, the things that you do or the the way that you live your life. And I think that so many of our churches fall into that as well. How do you think that people fall prey to this really without knowing it? Yeah. I mean, I think some of it comes down to, as I talk about in the book, political messaging is so much more formative uh, than we give it Mm. credit for. And so we think, you know, I turn the news on or I go on social media or I go to a rally or I listen to, you know, a politician speak and I'm just getting political information, you know, and I can uh, assess it rationally and decide what I agree with and what I don't. And again, as Christians, we have every reason to believe that humans are just don't work that way. We are drawn in the world. We are motivated by the things that we love and the things that we love are often shaped and formed by, you know, messages that use, uh, you know, effective means of communication. They're using images and sounds and and telling you a story that's very powerful. And so we might think, you know, I can go to a campaign rally, I can watch an ad, and, and I won't have my theology changed. I'll just have my mm-hmm. political beliefs sort of shaped, or I, or I might decide to change them, or I might not, and it's really truly up to me. Instead of recognizing that we really have no you know, option about how we are shaped by the environments that we're in. We really just have the choice of being in the right environment to be properly shaped. And so we right. can go to all those things and and not realize how they're, how they're changing us. Okay. So the next one is the patriotic gospel. This one, I have to tell you, I was in the car with my husband 
we were driving. We had gone downtown to visit family. I'm reading the book and I'm like going, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It was one of those moments. It was like, yes, somebody gets it. Like somebody is just writing straight to me. So I apologize to anybody listening that's like, wait, what? I hope that you stick with us and listen, but walk us through that. Tell us what this means. Yeah. So the patriotic gospel, you know, could be true in lots of different countries, but it's especially Mm -hmm. true in America because we have this particular story that has often been told, especially by Christians, about the founding of our nation that says that it was founded on biblical principles, that the founding fathers were Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, Neither of those are entirely true (laughs) things. Right. Um, And especially (laughs) even if we wanted them to be true, um, that seems strange to want them to be true because there was, you know, slavery and genocide and the subjugation of of women and poor people from the very beginning of our country's founding. And so to kind of try and baptize all of that and say that that was a Christian beginning and we have to return to our roots, our Christian roots, is just not a true story. And it's not one that reflects very well in our faith. Right. I can't imagine returning to that. No, thank you. (laughs) And it's also a remarkably new story. You know, there's roots of it in different times and places, but a lot of it comes down to during the Cold War, as we're afraid of communism, you know, a lot of the things that we think of as pretty normal, like saying the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, every single day, the under God part of the Pledge of Allegiance, things like that, were added as sort of a way to unite Americans around, you know, a Christian past, a Christian identity, and that became very politically Mm -hmm. important. And so we kind of miss sometimes how, again, those are formative habits and rituals in our life. And so when we go to football games and there's the national anthem and the emotion is so high and there's fireworks and it's, it is drawing your heart to love something. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean those things are inherently bad, but it does mean we have to be aware of what's happening to us. You know, I'm a military kid, so I went to a lot of, you know, military ceremonies growing up and you know, the way that people dress and all of the importance and value that is communicated, Mm -hmm. it would get you emotional. And even now, as someone who thinks, oh, I have all these problems with things in my country and and I have problems with (laughs) this patriotic gospel, I still get swept up in it. And so Mm -hmm. what that tells me is, again, not that those things are inherently bad, but that they must be incredibly powerful if they can override the things that I think in my brain and instead cause me to love something with my heart. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of Christians, again, I really want people to have some sort of identity in their community, even in their country, have some sort of identification with people that are close to them and wanting to seek the good of the place that they're in. And yet what tends to happen is that our ultimate loyalty, not just a lower level loyalty, but our ultimate loyalty is captured by our country, which as Christians is not an option we have because our ultimate loyalty should be to the family of God, people of faith that, um, you know, God has literally created a new people for himself and that should be our ultimate loyalty loyalty. And again, that's why that's so dangerous because we're not supposed to have this other, this other loyalty competing with it. Right. Okay. So the next one is the security gospel. What does that look like? Yeah, this is the one that I think a lot of people have been most surprised by, Um, not because they don't Uh identify with it, but because it's maybe something they've never thought about before. Um, So I talk about it both on kind of a personal level and on a national or like, you know, a community level. And it's this idea that our ultimate good, again, all of these things are things that are, 
you know, temporal goods. It's good to, to right. have, you know, the ability to take care of yourself financially. It's good to care about your country. It's good to, to be physically secure. But none of these things are ultimate goods. And the way politics works, they try and, and get us to treat them as ultimate goods. And so if our ultimate mm-hmm. good is our physical security, which is never promised to us in scripture, then right. we will do things that often allow us to justify harm against our neighbor. So we'll live in really gated communities where we, we, we understand that the people mm-hmm. outside the gate are the other that we have to be protected against and we have to protect ourselves. Again, not a necessarily bad thing, but the kind of logic and, and storytelling that usually happens is I have to be protected from them. And then nationally, that yeah. extends to things like the way we talk about immigrants and refugees, um, the way we talk about our criminal justice system. Um, again, all things that that could be good in a certain sense, but that are often twisted by the fact that when security is your highest good, higher than anything else, mm-hmm. then you'll allow yourself to justify all sorts of really you know, awful things instead of recognizing that it might be a good, but so is the good of treating your neighbor as you want to be treated, of caring for the most vulnerable in your community, of justice for those who have been accused of a crime mm-hmm. or even convicted of one. And so having the ability to recognize that this is not something that's promised to us. And in fact, oftentimes mm-hmm. our desire for it causes us to justify all sorts of other things that throughout scripture God's people have been condemned for doing. Yeah, I saw a video on Twitter this week, and you may have seen this too. It was floating around everywhere, but a woman mm-hmm. was being interviewed about a, like a Section 8 housing community going in right near mm-hmm. her neighborhood. And I mean, she just the things she was saying, it was just so heartbreaking to hear because she thought, you know, it was okay that the way, the way she was speaking about these people, because she was seeing them as the other, that they were dangerous, that, yeah. I mean, how dare they move in? And it, because it might make her look bad or it might mm-hmm. disrupt her, her community. But the point was to create affordable and good housing for these, uh, the people that had struggled with poverty and to be able to send their kids to good schools and, you know, just be afforded some of the same rights. And so I think, and she kept saying like, Oh gosh, I know that sounds terrible. The way I'm saying it is like, well, yes, honey, it does sound terrible, but you know, I think that so many people, we don't even realize that those things have been instilled in us and we say it and it's like, Oh gosh, like, you know, and so we really have to break down a lot of these things within us and this the sin that we are living with as well to be able to see those people, you know, that are in the fringe and that need our love and need someone to step in and care for them. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's really interesting also when we talk about it sticks out to me talking about the prosperity gospel and the security gospel, especially, I think, is looking at the life of Jesus mm-hmm. and the fact that he could have come as a king. He could have come as someone that was wealthy and could do all these things, like give all this money and do all these things. But he came to just, his circumstances were just not ideal for a typical person, you know, to come and be a baby for one and to have nothing, you know, come to a family that it already started out rough with, you know, imagine the gossip and things Mm -hmm. going on behind the scenes. But then he came into just this poor situation, but we can see that he sees us in that because of Mm -hmm. that. And so it's interesting that we look to that as a negative. Um, Well, come on, just pull up your bootstraps and get yourself (laughs) together when it's like our example was living Mm -hmm. in that as well. So it's very interesting. 
Okay, the last one. I'll be honest, I was going to skip this um, because I just did an episode a few weeks ago all about this. So the gospel of white supremacy. Um, But then after the debates where Mm -hmm. our president didn't denounce white supremacy, I felt like we really needed to dive into this. So what is this telling our churches when we look at politicians who are saying, you know, who are really speaking to churches but they're not willing to denounce this idea of white supremacy. Yeah, and part of what's difficult is that a lot of people will see something like the debate and they'll say, oh, well, I would just say, yes, I condemn it, you know, given the right, chance right, I would. Right. And, and I hope that that's the lowest bar, right? That, that yes. when asked the direct question, you just say, yes, I do. Um, but mm-hmm. part of the problem even of that is that we tend to think, again, it's all a cognitive thing. You know, what are the things I believe in my mind? And when I think about it, if I had to write down a statement about what I think about race, I, of course, would not say that I think white people are superior. I wouldn't say, mm-hmm. you know, that I believe any of these stereotypes about other, you know, other races. Right. And yet right. we often, um, partially because of forces outside of our control, the neighborhoods we grew up in, the schools we go to, which because of mm-hmm. our own history um, and a history of legal and, you know, cultural segregation, we've picked up, you know, stereotypes about people. We've picked up ideas about ourselves. Statistically, white children grow up in much more segregated neighborhoods than children of any other racial Mm -hmm. background. And so the only exposure that they have to people who are not like them typically is through media. And so even the best kinds of media can create stereotypes um, and it doesn't create empathy with people who are different from you. And so Mm. especially in churches, churches are some of the most segregated institutions that still exist in our country. And so Part of the goal of including that gospel was to say, this is a great example of, again, something no one would consciously say that they agree to, hopefully, or very few people at least. Right, right. But one that shapes not only our beliefs, but also the way that we act and live in the world. And so if the community that you grew up in that was so prosperous and and you got to walk to your school and you had next door neighbors you loved and it was all white, and then you go into a neighborhood mm-hmm. that doesn't look like that and you bring your own stereotypes and assumptions, you what has happened is that your vision of what a good life is, of what the world should be like, is a pretty white one. And then that has implications for the way you vote, for the way you build relationships with people, for the way your church worships and acts and serves in the community. And so um, hopefully a lot of the ways I intend to have this conversation with people to try and, again, bring barriers down a little bit, make people less defensive, Mm -hmm. is just to try and talk through how they grew up, what kinds of um, images they had of other people that were not like them. And just to say, it's not, I'm not trying to say that you were a bad person. That's such a strange way that we've talked about, you know, a racist is a bad person. And so if you're not a bad person, Uh then you're not a racist. Instead of recognizing that, again, Christians have every theological reason to say sin is structural. Mm -hmm. It is deceptive. We don't recognize when it's taken hold in our hearts very often. And so, and it happens through generations over and over the same kind of sins are often passed down. And so if we really believe that theology, then we should have every reason to more critically examine not just the things that we believe, but also mm-hmm. the exposure we have to other people, the real relationships, not just sort of superficial ones where we feel like we're still in sort of the position of always giving and never getting or having some kind of mutual relationship. Um, but then mm-hmm. also just looking at our own churches and saying, you yeah. know, we have a, we have worship that happens in this space that shapes how we think about God and how we think about what Christian community looks like. And it should probably be shaped by a community that's different than the one that we have. And I think we, a lot of times people forget, we all have racial bias. Right. Just like you were saying is 
it's just in us. And unfortunately, that is just the way it is. And we have to consciously be fighting against that and retraining our minds to see and love others Mm -hmm. the way that Christ did. And so if we are just saying, well, I'm not racist, I, I love, I have a black Mm -hmm. friend, you know, if we're saying, throwing out all those like cliches, then we're missing the point. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually being able to, I mean, for both of us, we are white Mm -hmm. women in privilege. If we can use our privilege to stand in the gap for those who are less privileged and struggle and to provide space and voice for them, that makes a big mm-hmm. difference. And to step into our churches and say, hey, we we have these issues that we need to mm-hmm. root out. Um, that can make a big difference. Yeah. So, yeah. I want to talk about community and what community looks like within our churches and how that looks as we face politics. Mm-hmm. I think I'm sure you've seen this as you've studied, but I feel like churches are like, we're not going to get political. <laughs> oh, we don't want to go into that. And I don't know how many times I hear people be like, oh, gosh, the pastor, like, that he said something and it was so political. Um, talk to me about that. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I say most frequently to people, because they'll come up to me and they'll say either, I'm really happy my church isn't political or my church is getting too political or, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. And I always want to say, can we talk about what you mean by that word? What that means. <laughs> right. Because, right. Because typically what, what people often mean is either they mean partisan so yes. my pastor's getting up and and praising only one side of the aisle or one you know mm-hmm. politician or one party, or they mean honestly that they're getting uncomfortable by what's happening in yes. their church. And yes. so I want to, to to completely affirm that churches should not be partisan. Mm-hmm. We should not be places where the pastor right. gets up in the pulpit and says, vote for this person. However, yeah. we should be political. And honestly, it should make you uncomfortable sometimes because mm-hmm. we worship a God who cares about all sorts of things that impact our politics, cares about the structural the structural barriers to our neighbors flourishing, that cares about the way communities are organized. I mean, that's both when it comes to Israel, where there's all of these laws that we tend to think are really boring, but that speak not only mm-hmm. to, you know, yes, they could not earn their salvation by fulfilling these laws. That's the way it was described to me growing up was just, oh, it just proved mm-hmm. to them that they couldn't save themselves. But it also showed that God cared about how a community was structured and especially that he yes. cared about how the vulnerable were treated. I mean, the amount of rules for the people to follow mm-hmm. where the end result was intended to be that those who were vulnerable were cared for, that you treated the foreigner yes. and the widow and the orphan uh, with high esteem and you took care of their physical needs. That was of obvious concern to God because he took the time to create, you know, this whole system for them to follow. And then even the way that Jesus did ministry, right, was not only, I mean, I love really early in Luke when he's describing really the beginning of his public ministry. And he quotes from Isaiah about freeing the captives and, and giving sight to the blind and uses all this language that is not just about, yes, the very important spiritual aspect of redemption that happened because of his death and resurrection. But at that point, he's not even, we're not even close to the cross. We're just at these years where he's going to be feeding the hungry and healing people and building a community of people to learn from him that we then see in Acts, they live out what this really looks like. And his description Mm -hmm. of his vocation mirrors Mary's description in the Magnificat, really, you know, a chapter earlier of 
God is is shaping human communities and he is undoing right. injustice and he is flipping things upside down. And that's something that God's people are supposed to care about. So of course, in your church, there's going to be passages that the pastor comes to and preaches on that are about wealth and poverty and how we treat foreigners and the way our communities should be structured. And those are going to be political in the sense that they have something to do with our common life and political in the sense that you probably mean it, which is it makes you uncomfortable. It convicts you. It's mm-hmm. kind of difficult to work out. Um, and that's the kind that I want I want to see in communities. So there was a story you shared in your book that was the story of a baptism mm-hmm. that happened, what was it, 1978? Yeah. Um, tell that story because, wow, this impacted me hearing this. Yeah. So this is a, a theologian um, who's written a ton um, about a lot of these things, but tells this really beautiful story um, and starts it off with a sort of provocative statement. He says, our church issued a statement on race today. <laughs> and it's supposed to mm-hmm. kind of make you go, oh, OK, what <laughs> statement did you put out? Oh, you know? what, what? Especially yeah. with all of the you know protests in our country, a lot of churches have been putting out statements. They've said, this yeah. is what I think. Yeah. And I love how he then turns it on its head and says, we baptized a young black man into our into our family. And what that means mm-hmm. for us is that suddenly his concerns are our concerns. Injustice against him is injustice against us. The fights that he is fighting become our fights. And so that's the statement that we have made is that you are now, you belong to us and we belong to you. And so we no longer get to act as if the concerns that you are facing, particularly of of racial injustice, are concerns that are just of hypothetical interest to us. Now it's our Mm -hmm. family and we have to do something about it. And I think that's a good way, I love that you brought it up because Again, too often we think, what's the statement I can write? Um, how can our right. church in its doctrine be correct about these things? Yes. Instead of yes. thinking, are we actually doing something much more formative? A baptism is incredibly formative. It involves someone's body. It's a, a visual image to the church of something spiritual and physical and relational that's happening. Um, a whole community is involved. That's a much more formative experience than a pastor getting up and, and I hope giving a very correct statement about racism and mm-hmm. how it denies some pretty central Christian doctrines. And yet I don't think it's as formative as some of these other things that are gifts that God gave the church from the very beginning and said, use these forms. They will shape you and mold you and Christians throughout history and around the world have used them. And I think we're really missing out if we, if we don't rely on them more strongly. Yeah, I agree. There's something about making it personal mm. that will change and transform yeah. you. Um, for me, uh, my listeners know, but I have a black son and we adopted this little black boy. He was two days old when we brought him home and he's now four and a half and he's the joy of our mm-hmm. lives. But the fact that he stepped into our family, it made it personal for yeah. us And it made this narrative different because it helped us see how our, our view of policies and Mm. things needed to shift and change because he became a part of our family. And, and I hope that our churches see that. And so just that story really struck me in, wow, I hope the spaces that my son steps Mm. into the community that he steps into, see him and say, okay, we're changing everything we do because we want to make sure he is seen and he is taken care of. And and I think that that should be the case across the board for, um, you know, orphans and widows and those that are oppressed and whatever that looks like within our spaces of community, because I feel like our churches try to avoid quote unquote politics, (laughs) but Really, there's so much that we should be stepping into because it's our job. Mm-hmm. We're called as Christians to care for these people. And one of the 
greatest ways we can do it is by shaping the policies within our communities. And so a lot of people will say that, well, I don't want to get into Mm -hmm. politics. Um, Maybe I just shouldn't vote. And it's funny because just yesterday when we're recording this, you had just gotten on and talked about a tweet you saw about a pastor that was like, well, you know, God's sovereign. And so the best person or he'll choose the right person or whatever. Why is that incorrect? Why should Christians be educated? Why should they vote? Why does this matter for us? Yeah. So one of the things about that tweet was that it just, I mean, it's theologically wrong. (laughs) Uh, Before we even get to the political stuff, it's just not, it's not theologically correct that God's sovereignty Mm -hmm. means that he approves of everything that happens. I mean, that should be obvious to us, but sometimes it's not, especially when our guy is the candidate we're talking about. Of course, then God is Mm -hmm. is affirming of that. Of course. Um, And so really it's, I mean, God's sovereignty means that he is in control and we never have to fear that he is not in control. What it does not mean is that we have no responsibility to engage politically, Um, especially, again, when it comes to the most vulnerable in our communities, because that's how scripture describes what God's people are supposed to do over and over and over again in the prophets. There are condemnations of God's people for continuing about their religious duties, for going to the temple, for making their sacrifices, and yet missing something inherent in their worship, which is how they treat the most vulnerable in their communities. My favorite example mm-hmm. of this is in Jeremiah 7 in his temple sermon when he just says, you know, you're mistreating people, you are acting unjustly, and then you're going to the temple and saying, we're in the temple of the Lord. Like, we should be mm-hmm. fine. He's not going to judge us, you know? Right. And so we have every reason to believe that that God's people are called to be engaged, especially on behalf of the vulnerable. And then when it comes to why we should engage politically, really it means, I mean, we have this incredibly unique position in human history of having this level of ability to change things politically for us. When, when Paul mm-hmm. is writing in Romans 13, you know, submit to government authorities, it's really complicated all of what he means. And, and we know he can't mean certain things because he was mistreated constantly by government authorities. Right. However, we also know that it would not have been in his wildest dreams for Christians to have any ability to change something about the government. You know, that was just not an yeah. option that was available to them. Right. And so for us to be now in a position where we can look at scripture when it says, hey, God ordains leaders, he gives power, you know, he's the, the ultimate source of authority that then governments have authority because of him. That should not be a reason for us to say, okay, let's just not be involved. That should be a reason for us to say, if their authority is coming from God, then the way they exercise their authority should match the way that he does, the way he has given humans to act in the world. And as Christians, we should call them to account for that. We should hold them accountable for when they're not using their authority justly as he intends humans to. Instead of seeing it as another opportunity to have our hands off, that's just not something. I think if early, you know, first century Christians had been plopped into our context and they suddenly had all this ability to change things, they wouldn't have thought, okay, let's become all the political leaders and take everything over and become the powerful Christian state. But they also, I don't think, would have thought, oh, wow, let's just not engage and kind of isolate ourselves in our community. I think they would have thought, Mm -hmm. let's be faithful. Let's use the resources that we have available to us. Let's not go too far one way or the other. But also for the people that were literally being persecuted, it was like, oh, you can vote that guy out. Let's do that, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I'm on board. That's amazing. Okay, here on my show, I encourage women to ask questions and do the work to really help them reframe their thinking. Mm-hmm. Is there a resource that you would share today, maybe a book or a TV show or a movie or something that's helped you reframe the way you look at the world? 
Yeah, one of the things I was just thinking about is this really incredible book, um, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Yeah, such a it's good book. It's so good. And and the reason that I like the reason I first thought of it was because it's not what a lot of us would tend to think of when we're trying to figure out how to respond to racial injustice. A lot of us would yes. say, okay, like tell me what to do or give me a book that teaches me like a good theological understanding of this. And I think those things right. are important. But I think for American Christians, one of the things we need to learn better is that knowing our own history will shape the way that we respond in the future. And so he does Absolutely. a great job of going through, and as, especially as someone who's a believer. So he loves the church, yes. but he wants us to be honest about our past. And also, I think it should give some of us an impetus to say, okay, a lot of white churches have done really poorly on this for a long time. Mm -hmm. The good news is that the church is not just white American churches. The church is yeah. the global historic people of faith. Uh, we have churches that have been historically oppressed, you know, in our backyard, you know, black churches, churches from other ethnic right. backgrounds. And so how can we have the humility to learn from them, even if, you know, especially in a, in a circumstance where maybe the future of Christian worship in the United States seems, you know, scary to you. We've, we've lost some cultural or political power we once had. If that feels threatening to you, instead of responding by trying to hold on to everything and, and kind of gain mm -hmm. more power, how could you have the humility to look at churches who have always been in that kind of marginalized position and learn from them, right. elevate them? Um, and so I think his book does a really good job of consistently telling the truth about our history while also encouraging us to, to use it to be better, not to just kind of mourn it. We have to do that first. We have to repent and mm -hmm. lament, but also to, to move forward in ways that are more productive. Yes, I, I second that. He's just such a great leader to learn yes. from. I love his heart for the church and for teaching that history. So highly recommend that. Okay. Because we talk about hard things, I always like to wrap up with a fun question. Um, so we can end on a high note. What is something that has been bringing you joy lately? So I just went on a little road trip the other day. I had to uh, speak at a college and I got a bunch of like silly sour candy and okay. it was just like I felt like a kid again. The best. It was like <laughs> we went on a lot of road trips when I was a kid because we moved all the time. My dad's in the military, uh -huh. and it was there was something so joyful about being alone, being yes. not able to be productive because I was driving. So it was just music and podcasts, and oh, I I uh -huh. jammed out like you know singing at the top of my lungs with some sour candy and like you know an occasional phone call to a friend or something. It was just right. It was joyful. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love it. Twizzlers are my um, road trip oh, candy. Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, that's so good. And that's the only time I eat yeah, them is yes, when I'm like same. going somewhere in the car. And usually only if I'm by myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like if I'm with my family, I tend to get healthy yeah. snacks. But if I'm by myself, I'm like, give me the Twizzlers and probably a bag of M&Ms Yeah, too. <laughs> it's those little orange slices to me. Like not actual oh, orange yeah. slices, like the candy yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> those, My kids love those. They're so good. And same thing, I never, I've never bought them for any other reason than being in the car. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny that we have those things that, I love it, I love it. Okay, uh, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your book. Yeah, uh, Twitter, Instagram, um, both are at Caitlin Chess. And then if you go to CaitlinChess.com, you can find links for all the different places you can buy the book. And um, you can also find some links for a couple companion resources I did, some like prayers and practices for the election season that um, my hope is that even, you know, I want people to buy the book, but those I think are a great resource as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will put links to all that in the show notes. Caitlin, thank you. This has been so great. So helpful. I hope it gives people a little bit of peace and wisdom as they walk into voting. Yeah, me so too. thank you. I appreciate it. 
I'm Kara K. James, and you've just listened to the Asking for a Friend podcast. I hope that you are inspired and encouraged by these conversations to step out of the status quo and engage in conversations that matter. You can find the show notes for this episode and subscribe at karakjames.com slash podcast. I also love connecting with you on social media. I'm at karak.james on Instagram and Facebook and at karakjames on Twitter. You can also subscribe to my newsletter at karakjames.com slash newsletter. This podcast is meant to provide you with a safe space to work through the questions that you have about yourself, the church, and the world around you. Please never hesitate to reach out if you need a safe place to land. Thank you so much for listening and keep asking questions for a friend.